Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Enjoying the podcast? Let us know. Send a recording or written testimonial to podcast at cbeinternational.org of why Mutuality Matters matters to you, and we may feature you on an upcoming episode. The opinions expressed in CBE's Mutuality Matters podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of CBE International or its members or chapters worldwide. The designations employed in this podcast and the presentation of content therein do not imply the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of CBE concerning the legal status of any country, area, or territory, or of its authorities, or concerning the delimitation of its frontiers. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to the Mutuality Matters podcast from Christians for Biblical Equality. Alongside my friend and ministry colleague, Lila Van Gerpen, I am Rob Dixon. Can women and men work alongside one another in healthy ministry partnerships? Our answer is most certainly. And on this podcast, we interview practitioners exploring stories about what flourishing mixed-gender ministry partnerships look like in the field. Listeners, this episode will be a bit different from the conversations we usually host. October is National Domestic Violence Prevention Month, and we have three experts in the field of gender-based violence to help us think about how mixed gender partnerships can become safe spaces for everyone involved. On this episode, we've got a roundtable of guests, all of whom are contributors to the book Created to Thrive, Cultivating Abuse-Free Faith Communities, put out by Christians for Biblical Equality. So Natalie Collins is with us. She's a gender justice specialist working with a number of organizations in the UK, Natalie speaks and writes on understanding and ending gender injustice, both nationally and internationally. Chuck Derry is also with us. He's been involved in efforts to end men's violence against women since 1983. In 1994, he co-founded the Gender Violence Institute in Clearwater, Minnesota, an organization that, among other things, offers training on the dynamics of domestic violence. And Nikki Locke is here. She serves as a course coordinator and lecturer in pastoral counseling at St. Mark's National Theological Center in Barden, Australia. Nikki has over 25 years of experience as a counselor, therapist, and educator. Welcome, everyone. I love that we're going global for this interview. We've got Natalie coming in from the UK. We've got Nikki in Australia. And Chuck, Rob, and I are coming in from different parts of the US. We're so glad to have you all here. For the listeners, it was not easy to schedule this Zoom call. So <laughs> thanks to everyone for being here. Yes. Um, well, I'd like to start uh, by inviting each of you to briefly share a bit of your story. So how did you get into gender violence prevention work and what keeps you motivated to work for change in this area, how you keep the fire burning? Natalie, can we start with you? Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. Um yeah, I'm based in the UK in the north of England and um, I've been working on issues around men's violence towards women for about 15 years. People are always like, when they see my uh, email signatories like gender justice specialists, they're like, how do you become one of those? <laughs> like, like, I want to be one of those. Um, and essentially I've worked on lots of different things around domestic violence, sexual violence, um, female genital mutilation, pornography, sexual objectification. And so I was like, what's like a word that... <laughs> 
<laughs> like what's a title that encompasses all these different things that I do um, and so yeah so I started off delivering courses for women in the um, local community who'd been subjected to abuse um, I then wrote a course for young people about abuse and exploitation and trained practitioners to run that with young people in schools and in youth groups and that kind of thing um, I have founded a, a couple of projects within Christian context so uh, project 328 um, started off by counting the number of men and women on the national Christian platform and we'd like release the stats every year to like celebrate the good ones and shame the bad ones well not really shame the bad ones but kind of <laughs> so we we really saw it in in a really different a shift in in uh, the national christian platform as events were like oh no we don't want to be on the naughty list <laughs> so um, we then launched a, a database of women who can speak at christian events around that so i helped to find that found the christian feminist network in the uk and um, set up a campaign about the 50 shades series a few years ago too so i've done lots of different things at the minute now i am um, I have I run a small charity called the Women's Liberation Collective and we uh, run um, train practitioners across the UK and Ireland and actually beyond that as well to run a course with women who've been subjected to abuse called the Own My Life course um, and that equips uh, women who've been abused to understand things around trauma, around what's going on in their bodies, but also to understand abuse and wider societal messages as well. Wow. Um, Natalie, how, with all of that, how do you keep the fire burning? I think there's something about we can't, uh, if our aim is to succeed in ending men's violence, like we're not going to achieve it. Sorry to break the news to everyone who thinks we can get there. The only people who can stop abuse are abusers. Like the rest of us are really going to struggle. Um, but um, so there's something about changing what our measures of success are. So for me, like the as a Christian, I, like the goal is to get to heaven and, and God say good and faithful servant. And so like for me, the, the goal is about how am I being obedient to God and that that's how I keep keep going. It's not about have I succeeded, have I achieved, have I ended, have I what change have I made? It's at, you know hopefully the byproduct of being obedient to God is that we see transformation. Um, but actually the thing that keeps me going is am I being obedient to God? Like what is my relationship with God? How are my spiritual kind of practices, my spiritual disciplines, all that kind of stuff? So that's that's where I kind of find myself. How can I root myself more fully in in God and in Jesus? Um, and that's how I kind of keep going. <laughs> It's beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, Natalie. Chuck, same question for you. So what's your, a little bit of your story and then um, what keeps the fire burning for you? Well, I do um, training and technical assistance uh, nationally and internationally on domestic violence. I do a lot of work with criminal justice uh, individuals, law enforcement, prosecutors, judges. I do a lot of work with uh, people who are working with men who batter uh, civil justice people, child protection folks. Do a lot of work uh, organizing uh, men, nas locally, nationally, internationally as well, to stand up in partnership with women to end men's violence against women, the sexual and domestic violence and the sexual exploitation, and the list goes on, uh, income inequality, et cetera, et cetera. And so I've doing, been doing that since 1983. I started working uh, with men who batter uh, when the uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota, a town of about 100,000 people, uh, I worked with Rose Thielen, who was an advocate at the women's shelter for battered women. And she went to Duluth and learned about their coordinated community response, which is really about getting the criminal justice system and the civil justice system to do something about domestic violence because they weren't doing anything in 83. And I was hired to work with men who batter and uh, did that for about 10 years, worked with about 2000 men. 
And the amazing thing is I thought, oh, this will be a cool learning experience for me. You know, I was a carpenter before that, you know, right? Totally different construction worker. But that's, it was a transformative. Mm. I got into this workout. Oh, I'm kind of a cool guy. I'm not very sexist and stuff, you know. And I started doing this work and I found out my big toe was sexist. <laughs> it wasn't just this little attitude I had. It was bone deep, right? And it's like, I remember the first group I did with men who batter. And I thought, oh, this will be really interesting. I wonder how I'll be different from them because I've never been abusive. And that's not what was interesting at all. What was interesting is how much I was like the men who beat and rape women, not how I'm different from them. Like some guy in group told this real sexist joke and we all laughed, myself included. I was one of the facilitators. I was co-facilitating with a female and she goes, let's put the brakes on this a minute. Uh, let's back up. Well, what was that joke really about? I just laughed at this really nasty sexist joke. So I was lucky that I worked with a lot of women who were willing to challenge me willing to debate me, even willing to get angry with me because of my own sexist behavior. And I had, and I learned about their lives. The lives they lived were nothing. I had no idea the kind of danger that they lived with all the time and what they had to do to keep from being harmed by men. And so I had to start asking myself, okay, Chuck, you get all this privilege from sexist oppression at their pain. Do you want to keep taking your privilege at their pain? So you ask, why do I keep doing this work? because it's the right thing to do. Because as a man, there's no neutral position. I'm either part of the problem or part of the solution because a lot of men are silent about this. They don't want to say anything, right? Oh, I just won't say anything, right? And that's these many guys, one in three women are raped. One in three women are beaten by the man she's in relationship with. There's no way that this many men could be beating and raping and sexual assaulting this many women and children without widespread cultural support. So there's all kinds of social norms that we talk about for male social norms. And then there's also male silence supports men's violence. And so we have to stand up as men. We either part of the problem or part of the solution. So that's what keeps me involved as well. And I, the pain and the suffering that women are living with, that's horrible. So I have to ask myself, what kind of man do I want to be? Am I willing to give up some of the benefits to have equality? And then do I care about joy? Do I care about women's lives? Do I care about the hope and love? Mm -hmm. So that's why I stay. Wow. Thanks, Chuck. How about for you, Nikki? Well, I got involved in this work um, 25 years ago when I first started in counselling, but I guess really the roots of it are sort of being brought up in the 70s and being a feminist and even when I first left university and counting sexist attitudes when I was looking for work. Um, but when I started working training as a counsellor, I went for some training in domestic violence and the, the male trainer, and it was a Christian agency I was working for, said, when a couple come in for relationship counselling, I always assume domestic violence is present unless proven otherwise. And I was kind of shocked by that. And I thought, no, 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 that, that can't be true. You know, what, what kind of a premise is that to work under? These are Christian couples we're working with. And in my rather sheltered middle-class existence, I really hadn't come a lot across a lot of domestic violence in my life. Sadly, as I began working in relationship counselling, um, his words rang in my head. More and more of the couples that I saw, there was domestic violence in all of its various forms. You know, that it's not just about the physical battering, but the emotional abuse, the financial abuse, the sexual abuse, the social abuse. Um, and sadly, I'm still seeing it in the couples that I work with in um, ministry couples, in church workers, in 
you know, church members, um, along, of course, with it being um, out there in the broader community. Um, so that's, it's really just been present in my professional life. But about 15 years ago, I began working with the um, National Anglican Church in Australia around developing professional standards for protection of children, women and vulnerable people. Um, and that work has been so important in educating people in the church and slowly, slowly making some changes. Um, but the question about why I stay, I think that firstly why I stay is that I know that this work particularly makes a difference for survivors. Mm. When survivors understand that something is being done about this, that mm. their voice has been heard, um, and that maybe every little piece of this work that is done, it means that maybe someone in the future won't suffer as much as they have done. It's really important for survivors. So that certainly keeps me in the work. Um, but the other thing is, um, of course, the work is not done. Um, Chuck's quoting the, the figures in, in the US. In Australia, a woman is murdered every week by her partner. Um, we had a female Australian of the year a few years ago who was a domestic violence survivor, and that certainly brought the debate into the public. But we still have a very, very long way to go. In churches, we have systems for prevention, which slowly, again, are being implemented and beginning to make changes. But I think I, I really love what Chuck is talking about and also Natalie. Um, we have a massive issue still around men's attitudes towards women that we've barely scratched the surface um, in terms of making deep change in, in that cultural area. So there's plenty of work to be done um, for us all to keep on working in this area. Absolutely. Well, we're so grateful for the ways each of you are contributing to that work. And I'd love to have us unpack the um, chapters that you contributed into this resource created to thrive. So let's start with you, Natalie. Natalie, your chapter in the book is entitled Words Make Worlds, How We Speak About Abuse. And in the chapter, you exposit a number of myths, things people say that trip us up in our quest for abuse-free faith communities. Could you start by sharing a couple that you find to be most prevalent? Yeah, I think, and I think these aren't just about um, faith communities. I think there's the, right. the language that we use to talk about abuse evolves. Um, and so, you know, um, and some of it is contextual, right? Like in the UK, we batter fish. We don't like batter people. Like that's putting like, you know, like a coat, like a, a, I don't know, like a type of like batter on a fish, right? Right, right. But some of it's contextual. <laughs> so it just doesn't translate in that sense. But also I do wonder how the word batter in and of itself kind of leads to this kind of um, domesticating of the language. We're talking about really, really severe violence. Um, and I, I do wonder, so I think there's a lot about how the language that we use, um, a couple of things that happens, we lose the agency of the perpetrator very quickly. Um, and we, um, we, he just leaves the picture very very quickly in our conversations and um, so for instance um, a, a much more common terminology quite recently has become abusive relationship the term abusive relationship it is not an abusive relationship it's an abusive person who is in a relationship the context of the the, the yes. abuse the relationship um, but actually there's a, there's really no no sentence where you couldn't say abuser and replace abusive relationship with abuser so if you were saying she left her abusive relationship or she left her abusive partner 
um, essentially. Um, but what the what the term abusive relationship does is it perpetuates the myth that this is a relationship issue. It suggests that relationship counselling is the solution. It suggests that if the relationship ends, the abuse ends. The abuser is abusive before he starts the relationship, during the relationship, and after the relationship. And so if he's if he kills her when when she's left him, what is it? <laughs> well, yeah. he's still abusive. So I think you know that understanding of language of abusive relationship. Um, for instance, the way we um, diminish women to the label of victim or survivor, like why do we have to have a label? There's very, there's very rarely a context where we couldn't just use the word woman when we're talking about abuse. So if we're saying we're talking about domestic abuse, women may feel rather than victims may feel, survivors may feel. Why why do we need to bring somebody down to a label of what has been done to them? I only ever to describe somebody as a woman who's been subjected to abuse, a person who's been subjected to abuse, and I don't use the term experience experience abuse because experience is something that doesn't have to have an agent you can experience cancer you can experience a roller coaster whereas actually you're subjected to violence so that those are just some of the ways that our language just kind of it seeps in that suddenly um he's lost he's left the conversation and we're talking about her as a battered woman no 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 he is a batterer he is a perpetrator and but she's just a human being who happens to have been subjected to that because when we start to shrink her down we start to label her then we start to assume there's something in her there's something in her there's a quality in her you know particularly myths around the idea that women have repeated relationships with abusers um that's just that's just not true there are some women who will have more than one relationship with an abuser but the one thing that that those of us who've had an abusive partner have in common is the misfortune of meeting an abuser this is not about socioeconomic um situation this is not about anything to do with us this is about this is about there being a high prevalence of abusers out there and so I think that there is something about the way that we he leaves the picture. The other thing about our language is the way that we diminish his responsibility. So if he stays in the picture, it's probably really hard for him, you know. He's probably having a really hard time. You know, he's probably got, you know, some sad childhood. You know, I was recently in a meeting with um, some really... One of the things that I'm finding is in our advancement of trauma-informed practice, the, the, the sneaky problem with trauma-informed practice. So we want to be more trauma-informed. We want to recognise the impact of trauma. But what happens is we then start talking about all these traumatised men who can't help but rape women. No! <laughs> it's not his trauma that causes him to rape women because women who are traumatised, guess what they don't do? Sexually assault people. <laughs> so I think there's a huge, huge issue with the kind of... Uh, the philosopher Kate Mann uses the word empathy, which is the undeserved empathy that we afford men. And I think within the church particularly, because we are a... Um, a community who are built on redemption we're built on the idea that we are sinners who are saved um from that sin we have a message for sinners we are, uh, very often don't have a message for the sinned against because obviously the byproduct of the sinner is the sinned against <laughs> that's why god hates sin because it's hurtful both to god and to human beings but i think within the church we're much better at talking about how our sin has been against god because god gives that sin but actually the consequences of our sins to other human beings don't go and so I think that sense of that we really want perpetrators to be reformed and redeemed and so we we're very much more quick we're quicker to afford um humanity to the perpetrator than we are to those who've been abused so that's just a few (laughs) off the top of my head things that I rant about quite a lot (laughs) I think those are really powerful shifts that um make a huge difference language matters and it's the language is revealing culture um 
Well, as a follow-up, would you give our listeners some tips for speaking about abuse in a helpful and accurate way? Yeah, so I think the questions we need to be asking is, where are we placing the responsibility and where are we placing the need? Who is being responsible? So if we're if we're talking about her, are we talking about her as the center of the need or the center of the cause? So, yeah, so when we're talking about domestic violence, um, if we talk about domestic violence like it's a verb, like it's sorry, like it's an adjective or a noun. So it becomes when we say um, the she was she suffered abuse. Abuse has become a noun. Abuse is only ever a verb. It's only ever something that somebody can do to another person. So are we are we describing something in a kind of are we making abuse a thing that exists independently of an abuser? Because it can't. It can't physically exist except mm. through somebody doing something. So the first thing is is he remaining present? Every time you write a sentence, every time you think about saying a sentence about abuse, have you mentioned the abuser? If you haven't, go back and rewrite it. <laughs> um, and, and also in terms of whose needs are we focused on? If we find out that we're mainly focused on his needs, how sad he is, how hard it is for him, how difficult it is for him, then we're getting it wrong. So in meetings, um, I would, uh, I'd get them to, I'd say to professionals, write down his name and her name, and then put a tally next to every time he's mentioned and every time she's mentioned. Inevitably, he leaves the conversation very quickly. And, and I say to them, your job is to make sure his name is mentioned as much as hers, that he is placed at the center of the responsibility. So in terms of what we're doing, asking ourselves, is he in the conversation? Is he being held responsible? And how are we ensuring that her needs remain present and we don't focus on him as the sad one? She's the sad one. She's the one who's struggling. She's the one who needs the support, but he's the one who needs to be held accountable and held responsible. Natalie, I appreciate you breaking that down, you know, in terms of the just how we structure a sentence and, and how we think about our communication. So, so helpful. Um, Chuck, let, let me bring you into the conversation here as well. Your chapter in Created to Thrive is entitled Why Men Batter, not fish. We're not talking about fish. We're talking about men, why men batter. And let me start by asking you that very question. So why do men batter? Because it works. It's very functional. If you look at violence throughout the world, it's very functional to get what you want if you're big enough to get that. And so this, this is a very conscious decision-making process. And once they put the violence into place, then they're able to use these other tactics that Nikki had mentioned um, to control her. Intimidation and control the money, control the children, use male privilege, social male privilege to control her, isolate her. And so it's a whole system of power and control and it's very functional. And it's not, these guys, they wanna suggest that it's either her fault or if somebody says, no, it's your problem, then they wanna convince you that they just lost control or they were drunk. And neither one of those is true. Drunk doesn't make you violent. Uh, these guys are not out of control. If a guy says to me, I lost control, then I ask him lost control of who? Because they are making conscious decisions. They could not be as sophisticated in the ways in which they abuse women and children if they were not consciously aware of what they were doing and why they were doing it. In fact, one time in group, batter's group, for the first time, I asked guys in group, so there's about 20 guys in group. I said, so what are the benefits of violence, guys? And they kind of all looked at each other, which is notable because men who batter, they deny their violence and they deny their intent. 
And but they all kind of looked at each other and say, and one guy says, Well, there are no benefits. And I said, Well, you must be getting something out of it. Otherwise, why would you do it? And then one guy started talking about the benefits. And then they all started talking about the benefits. And I filled up a four by eight foot blackboard, writing all the benefits on that board, and we ran out of space. And I looked at that board and I thought, why give it up? And I thought, okay, I'm going to ask them. Okay, guys, so why would you give it up? And then we'd fill a one foot by one foot space on that blackboard. And they'd say, getting arrested, civil protection orders. My adult children won't invite me to their weddings anymore. And I have to come to groups like this. And these are the same answers again and again and again. And so when you, in the book, Creative Thrive, I list out. I copy down everything that they put on that board. You know, I get to make all the decisions. I control the money. I get to have sex with who, when, and how I want to. It doesn't matter. She can't argue with me. She can't call the cops. I don't have to do any of the work at home. The list goes on and on and on. He does not have to negotiate at all. So it's very functional. Now, the other thing about them is that they use the community. They use their faith communities. They work, work communities, family, to further isolate her and to present her as the problem. And this is, again, you know, it's not a relationship issue like Natalia was saying, Natalie was saying, it's not a relationship issue. It's, it's about one person assaulting another to get what he wants. And it was amazing um, how functional it was. And the other reason that men batter is because it, there is widespread cultural support, which I mentioned earlier. This could not happen without widespread cultural support. And some of that support is total non-action to hold them accountable. And some of that support, like I said before about men's silence, and some of that support is the way men bond. We bond around women's bodies and what we like to do with them. They're just objects, right? And we make woman-hating jokes. And this is true. Anytime you have one group of people who think they're better than another whole group of people, you have attendant hostility. We see this with racism. We see this with classism. We see this with sexism. So men, we make jokes all the time about women we have, and what's the language that we use? In the United States, the language we use about women all the time is horrible. And it's the same language that men are using when they're raping and they're beating their wives. But we use it all the time when we make jokes about it. And so woman hating becomes a cultural norm in, in the United States and global. So this male cultural norm is global. I've done a lot of in, international work with men, and it's amazing how I can talk to some guy from Cambodia, some guy from Brazil, Australia, and the British Isles, all over. And I don't even have to speak the same language, but we can connect totally when we're talking about women because it's the same kind of um, subordination stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, and not to mention the ec economic inequalities that are happening with women all over the world as well. And so both it's the guys that are using violence because it works. And then the rest of the system, male system, is not stopping it. Because this violence is the foundation of sexism. Yeah. If you look anywhere in the globe where you have one group of people colonizing and, and oppressing another group, the violence is the foundation. When all else fails, bam, that works. Yeah. I shut her up because I'm big enough to do it. And the violence is contextual. Her, her hitting him, a five foot four, 140 pound woman hitting a six foot two, 180 pound, 200 pound man is different than that 200 pound guy smacking that 140 pound woman mm -hmm. and the power that comes in the con in, in the impact of that power and how then he can use all kinds of other power to control her and the children. So it's very functional. 
Um, and what we need is for men uh, throughout the world who are head of many of the institutions um, to work with women and to hold these men accountable mm -hmm. and to based on victim safety and offender accountability. And we can do that in faith communities. We can do that in workplaces. We can do that in family gatherings. We can do that in government. It's everywhere mm -hmm. and just has to be done. Yeah, Chuck, let me let me press in a little bit on that. So I'm curious as what practical things can a faith community do to help with accountability, which you just talked about, right? And I think in the book, you have a particular section on stopping it before it starts. So I'm curious about that as well. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure. Primary prevention. Um, stop it before it starts. And this is what I liked. Um, some of what Nikki was talking about, organizational change stuff. There's a thing called the spectrum of prevention. This prevention Institute in California created it. And a lot of times when people think about prevention, they think um, it's education and awareness building, but that has very minimal impact. The impact on the social norms and the cultural norms is organizational practice change and public policy change. So when we organize men, we always, the only time we would do educational or presentations to men, it was to build the social capital and the political will to change organizational practices and public policies. So in the faith communities, believe the woman who's being abused. Some In the U.S., they have civil protection orders that say he can't be anywhere near her. However, in the faith community, he's still in that, he still goes to that church. We'll use that example, church. And then she can't go there anymore because it's too dangerous. Because the minister is not telling, or a priest is not telling that person, I'm sorry, she's here, you cannot be here. Um, and so ministers have to really create these parameters of accountability for batterers, because then that woman loses her whole faith community and all the support she gets from that faith community. And if you're in a rural area, she's got to drive 10 to 20, 30 miles away to go to a different church, which she probably won't do, maybe will do, but she loses and he just totally isolates and he presents himself as just the nicest guy. I worked with 2,000 guys in my, over 2,000 guys in those 10 years, and I probably dislike 10 of them at the most. They're very nice, and they present themselves as very nice guys and very established and very educated and very blah. They don't meet the stereotypes we have in our heads, and they utilize that. They are, they are manipulating us to support him and that she's the problem, not him. And so the church community, faith communities have to really believe her and hold him accountable and say, I'm sorry, you're not. You cannot be present in this community at this time because um, this is for her at this time. However, you can change. And when you change and when you show with your behavior over time that you have changed, then you are certainly welcome back into this community. And we support that change. Um, then at the same time, these codes of conducts that, that Nikki has talked about, that these, you got to write these things down in these organizational practices, create these codes of conduct. What are, what is expected? What language is expected between the men? What kind of insinuations do they make about the women being ministers, the women being um, shared power? And how much in your organization is the power shared? Looking at both race and gender, right? Mm -hmm. But specifically we're talking about gender here, right? But they are intersectional sure. uh, in so many ways. And so oh, yeah. you have, have these written protocols, codes of conduct and protocols in place uh, to deal with men who batter. And then to the broader stop it before it starts is how do we shift the social norms so that women aren't seen as inferior? 
I, I appreciate your highlighting both the individual and the systemic work that needs to be done. Um, and you kind of um, launched us into the conversation around organizational code of conduct. So let's go to you, Nikki. Your chapter closes the book and discusses this idea of an organizational code of conduct. What is that? Unpack that for us. And how has it been helpful in creating abuse-free faith communities? Yeah, I guess at this point, having heard Natalie and Chuck, I sort of realized this is such a complex issue mm. and the code of conduct is a small piece in dealing with the, the organizational change, the cultural change that, that we need to have happening. But having said that, it's a, it is an important piece of the change mechanism. And it's bizarre, really, like most um, you know, ministers, when they're inducted into their, their roles in their various faith communities, they make, certainly, you know, in the Anglican Church, they make these things called ordination vows, where they vow that they're going to behave in this way and that way and the other way. And then, of course, what happens in reality, once they're out there in practice, is a, a certain number of them, not all of them, but a certain number of them really transgress those vows very seriously. Um, but again, it is it is kind of embedded in some of what Chuck is talking about, that, that patriarchal system that we live within. I think the great thing about organization, organizational codes of conduct is they do, they set the standards in clear, or they should set the standards in clear language, in layperson's language, so that we all understand, we're all on the same page. We all understand what is okay and what is not okay behavior. And, and really, it needs to be part of a suite of policies. It's not only the code of conduct, but also what happens um, when someone transgresses the code of conduct. How are we both going to deal with the perpetrator? And how are we going to support the person who's been abused? Um, help that person who's been abused on that, that journey of healing um, to be able to continue in their faith community without fear of um, intimidation, whatever, by their, by their perpetrator. Um, so they need to be detailed. Um, they need to write and say this is not an acceptable way of behaving. Um, they need to particularly deal with the issue of power imbalance and use of power and misuse of power. Um, but, again, a clearly written code, um, and I, I find myself saying the word written, the code being written is not enough. So, you know, first of all, they have to be developed carefully, relevant to the context that you're working in. Um, all the issues that Natalie was talking about around language um, have to be addressed. Um, they do have to be trauma-informed, and yet, uh, you know, I hear Natalie's concern about the use of the word trauma-informed, but they do need to be trauma-informed in order that they are written in a way that's appropriate for those who've been abused, that they feel safe when approaching the code of conduct. They need to be accessible, not stuck in a dusty drawer. They need to be avail easily available on every you know, church website. There should be a tab on the front page, safe, you know, why this is a safe church. Here's our code of conduct. Because I found this both in my counselling practice but also in the work I do in churches. People, I suppose it's because of this cultural milieu that we live in, people are blind to what is okay and what is not okay behaviour. And when you present something like a code of conduct or working in when I'm working with my counselling clients, I'll give them something like the Duluth violence wheel, which I know is really old-fashioned, but I'll say, 
have a look at this. How many of these behaviours are occurring in your relationship? And the person who's being abused looks at it and goes, wow. And I said, and look, what's that word in the middle of that circle? It says abuse. Um, they don't realise that they're being abused. Um, so by having these things clearly written down, this helps people just begin to eat. They know they feel yucky and awful and terrible, but they don't know why they're feeling yucky and awful and terrible. So by having it codified, we particularly, you know, this is one of the things we can help um, those who've been abused to actually realise that this is not an okay situation. We can help the people in the hierarchy and the faith community to go, hey, what is going on here is not okay. Something needs to happen about this. Um, and then, of course, they can be used in responding to the situation and in calling the perpetrator to account um, and in whatever discipline processes need to be put in place um, from that simple well, simple but important level of allowing the person who's been abused to continue in their faith community to exclude the perpetrator right through what, to whatever formal discipline process needs to occur within the faith community, depending on um, perpetrator's willingness to take accountability. Uh, this, is, this is Chuck's area, their ability to change. Um, generally, sadly, in my experience, it's pretty hard um, for many perpetrators to make much significant change. Um, so then it's about how do we provide safety for the person and the family that's been abused. Wow, that's really uh, helpful. That's really important. And like you said, simple, but so important. Let's break it down a little bit. Let's say there's a listener who's the leader of a church or a Christian organization, how would they go about establishing, getting this process started? If they don't have one, what would they do to start establishing an organizational code of conduct? What are some best practices for them? Well, there are some really good sort of uh, existing codes of conduct out there. And fortunately, many of them are pretty easily available. You could just Google church codes of conduct and you'll, you'll find a whole suite of organizations that have developed templates. Um, and you know, if you're a small church, independent church, go for a, you know, a reputable denomination that's done some good work in this area, you know, download their code of conduct and then see how you can adapt that to make that suitable for your conduct. So it, it's, not, um, it's not that you've got to start. In fact, you shouldn't start from the beginning because these well-developed codes of conduct have been developed uh, with trauma-informed practices in mind. They've been um, worked through carefully over years, they've been reviewed, they've been implemented. So find somebody else's code of conduct um, and you can use that and adapt that for your church. Um, you do you you need to have commitment from the leadership. If you don't have commitment from the leadership, you're not going to get any code of conduct implemented because this is how you you need that commitment so you can have the organizational change. There's going to be finances um, devoted to this, that you, you're going to need significant training um, and you're going to need regular training. Um, I'm wondering if I can ask each of you this sort of wrap-up question, which which invites you to dream about the church and to hope for the church. So the question goes like this, what are your dreams for the church in the area of gender violence prevention and women and men working together to address this? So let us into your heart a bit. Um, what do you long for when you think about the church? And we'll go in the same order. Natalie, can we start with you on that? I think for my vision uh, for the church, is a church where men do a lot more of the childcare, a lot more of making the sandwiches, and women do a lot more of the 
um, have a lot more of the power. Because this isn't just about women having, you know, more spaces. This probably means men having less spaces, and that's the really uncomfortable bit. Because <laughs> men are all for women having more as long as they don't lose anything. As Chuck says, this is about benefits. And so people are going to lose some of those benefits if things are going to change. And so I think we have to look at where those entitlements exist and how those entitlements are perpetuating stuff and, and look at changing that. Natalie, thanks for that. Chuck, what's, what, what's your heart for the church as you think about where we're going in this area? For one thing, I want to speak to the beauty that Natalie just said and what she said about male privilege and male entitlement and how that challenges us, because we will have to give some stuff up if women are equal. And the question is, do we care about women's lives? Am I willing to continue to take my pleasure at women's pain? What kind of human being do I wanna be? What kind of man am I? Will my compassion override my privilege? The beauty of the church is understanding Jesus. So if we wanna be Christ-like, quote unquote, then let's pay attention to how Jesus was with women. He believed in women. He trusted women. He loved women. He treated them as equals. They were human beings. And that's what we need to do in the church. And if we can do that, if we really express Jesus, then we're creating the community and the world in which we seek to create and the world in which we say we are creating as Christian uh, men. Particularly, I'm speaking to the men particularly. Man to man. It's like you look at Jesus and how he was with women, be the same way and things will change. Amen. Thanks, Chuck. Okay, Nikki, how about for you? What's your heart for the church? Well, I guess it's a pretty simple dream. I, I live in a part of the world where the major denominations are very conservative. Um, in my diocese, women are not allowed to be priests. Many, uh, Most Churches in my diocese don't have women preaching. My heart would be to see equal um, representation of men and women at all levels in the church, and particular in senior leadership. Um, it sounds pretty simple, but it's really it, it will be transformational. Like I know we're going to have all those problems. We we do have this issue of men and women in relation to the fall. But if we don't even begin to make the commitment to having men and women working together equally, uh, we are just not going to be able to address this issue at all. So equal, equal equality at all levels of the church and particularly at senior leadership levels. That's it. Seems like a huge, it seems like it'd be a mirror, like, can we please have women allowed to be allowed to preach in my diocese, have their voice? Um, there's no pathway for women to leadership in my diocese because they can't become priests. It's simple. Yeah. This has been so helpful, so fantastic. I'm so grateful for the work that each of you are doing. I'm grateful for this resource created to thrive. Um, if someone listening wanted to connect with you on social media or wherever, where can they find you? So I'm on LinkedIn, Nikki Locke. I also have a Facebook page, Nikki Locke Counseling. What about you, Chuck? Oh, I, I'm I'm on LinkedIn. I don't use it much. Uh, Facebook is possible, but uh, gender violence Institute.org uh, would be on the website, and then my email is the best way to connect with me, and that's GVI Gender Violence Institute. GVI at FrontierNet.net is the best way to connect with me. 
Perfect. Thank you. And what about you, Natalie? I have to say, I don't understand LinkedIn at all. <laughs> I do have a LinkedIn, but I just don't understand it. So um, I'm, I'm on Twitter as at God under, underscore loves underscore women. Um, and people can connect with me via my website at nataliecollins.info. And if they want to find out about more about the Own My Life course for working with women, it's ownmylifecourse.org. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll put those in the show notes as well for listeners. And we should do one more book plug, I think. So uh, to me, this episode is like an appetizer. Uh, and these three have been so generous to share their time and their expertise with us. And I hope listeners have enjoyed the conversation. For more, for the full meal, they need to get a copy of Created to Thrive. And these three have chapters, and then there are, cha- I think, 12 more or so. And you can find Created to Thrive on the Christians for Biblical Equality website, cbeinternational.org. And you can grab a copy and it'll be worth or worthwhile read, not just for you, for listeners, but for communities of people who might be interested in exploring this topic. So thanks again for you, to you three for calling in. It's been great to have a global podcast today. Appreciate you all. Well, thanks to everyone for joining us today and tuning in. We appreciate our guests. So we want to say thank you to Nikki Locke and to Chuck Derry and to Natalie Collins. And again, we want to remind listeners to get a copy of Created to Thrive from Christians for Biblical Equality. It's worth your read. Um, So we'd like to thank our guests as well as our talented editor, Landon Hook, and the team at Christians for Biblical Equality. Be sure to listen to other podcast episodes in this particular month as we explore the themes in Created to Thrive. And then we'll be back next month with our regular episodes. So thanks again for listening. We are the Mutuality Matters Podcast. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.